Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our show about earning a living independently doing something you love. Today we're joined by Nathan Barry. Nathan is a creator, author, speaker, designer, and the founder of ConvertKit. Nathan got his start as a software designer and self-published author before founding ConvertKit in 2013. Since then, the business behind ConvertKit has grown to an incredible $20 million annual run rate. Nathan, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're an old friend of Fizzle, and I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. We were just talking, uh, I think we met, uh, as you were saying, maybe in 2012 or so? Yeah, I went to, at the very first World Domination Summit, no, second World Domination Summit, my first one, uh, you hosted a Think Traffic meetup. Ah. I went to that and uh, met you and Caleb and James Clear and a bunch of people. A bunch of people who you're you're really close to now. I know um, yeah. we share a lot of friends in common, but those those early days of WDS really led to a lot of close connections. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you also, I remember you being at my house when we, I think we were launching Fizzle, and we had you and uh, Leo Babauta and Scott Dinsmore, yeah, uh, and maybe Baron Quadro, yeah, Baron Quadro as well. Was there. Yeah, and we we just did some like long ass like four hour long live stream where we were just having people in at different times talking about stuff and kind of celebrating the launch. That was fun. That was great. Yeah, and I remember uh, sitting in your living room because you guys would be live in one room and then we come in and out as different guests. And, and yeah, it was like the green room or something. Oh, and we had a great time. I I think that's the first time that I met Leo as well. Nice. That was probably more fun in the green room than we were having in the other room. <laughs> well, you know, you got both sides of it. That's true. So back then, this was pre-ConvertKit days, and yet you were really well-known already at the time because, as I mentioned before, you got your start as a software creator, and then I think really um, you kind of got on everyone's radar because you were self-publishing these books that were teaching people about app design and other things that you had gotten good at. You were pretty young at the time as well. Um, how old were you when you were publishing those books? Uh, 22, 23, 24. Yeah. And um, we were talking a little bit about this um, before we started recording, how you're generally self-taught, right? Did you um, study formally design or, or app design or self-publishing or any of those things? Yeah. Um, well, I was homeschooled. So being... Self-taught, self-motivated was a big part of uh, my education. Um, yeah. Now my kids go to a school where they say, um, like one of the, I don't know, it's a tagline or it's just something that they say, but we don't teach kids what to think. We teach them how to think. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in a similar way, I learned through school how to learn rather than what to learn. Um, and so that was a really important thing. So I, I did go to school for graphic design for a single semester, and uh, I strongly disliked the art department at Boise State. <laughs> and then I went into marketing and, and uh, went from there. But yeah, I don't have any formal design education, just a lot of tutorials, um, a lot of practice and trial and error. And you know, that's the cool thing, like being in web design in 2006 to 2000, uh, I don't know, 13? was when I was really in the web design community and so many people were blogging about web standards and everything else. Like, you know, I always say it's like, or people refer to it as self-taught, but I think of it as like, you just have to have enough motivation to go through it. Like you're not teaching yourself. Like 
these amazing people are putting out all the content you could ever want. And so your job is just to show up and, and put it in practice. That's true. And, and also things are changing so fast that it's not really fair to think that you could learn those things in college, right? Yeah. If, if it's in a textbook, it's already outdated. Yeah, th- yeah, for sure. And, and those, those blogs and, and um, YouTube videos and so on were so important at the time because things were changing so fast. Um, if you wanted to keep up, you just had to constantly be learning new things. And, and coming from a homeschool background, I can imagine that's a real advantage in some ways. I, I think um, socially homeschooling can, can be difficult, but the way that they teach you to learn, I think a lot of those um, techniques are actually being adopted even in, in regular schools these days. Um, we have some friends here who are starting something they call a free school, which is sort of like an unschooling yeah. situation, except that you you just provide a little bit of a framework for kids, but then you expect them to be self-motivated. And if you can learn that at alert at an early age, then here you are at, at 22, 23 thinking, well, why can't I just create this book and sell it? Or why can't I just create this software company and and find customers for it as opposed to looking for someone to give you permission or something like that. Right, exactly. Um, so you self-published books, and the reason you were able to do that was um, because you had an audience, right? It, you didn't just uh, create a book and then go looking for people to buy it. You had already been building an audience. What was that all about, and, and what was going through your mind there, and, and how did you grow that audience to begin with? Yeah, so... I realized there are all these people that I followed online. Um, uh, probably, you know, bigger names like Tim Ferriss or Chris Gillibo. Um, but then there, like, there was a, a guy named Chris Coyer who I followed, who uh, he started what's that called? CSS Tricks? Yeah, CSS Tricks. Yeah. And I remember whenever he started that, maybe it was 2009 or something, uh, 2008, I was working as a web designer. And I remember thinking, like coming across his articles and like... I thought all these other people were really talented and I came across his stuff and I don't know, it's kind of funny to say now, but I remember reading it and being like, he's not that much of an expert. Like I could do this. I know the same stuff. Like who's, uh, I don't know, maybe it makes it sound like a jerk, but I'm like, <laughs> who's he to be writing about this stuff? He's not some expert. Like he's not uh, in the web community, like a Jeffrey Zeldman or uh, one of these guys who's been around for a long time who like invented web standards or like, any of these things and it's not like he knows the same stuff i do like okay he's writing blog posts about it and uh um maybe like i wouldn't because i'm not an expert yet but i'm just as good as he is and i remember him putting out these articles and me reading it being like like almost patting myself on the back and going like oh yeah i knew that too like yep um and so going through that process until something happened uh like over maybe a year or two later uh, I had coworkers. I was working on design, uh, or uh, as a designer at a software company at the time. People would ask me CSS questions. And, like instead of explaining to that to them, I'd be like, "Oh, we'll go check out one of Chris Coyer's articles." You know, I'd link them to it because it's like a, it's a good explanation. And uh, then there was this moment where Chris came out with a Kickstarter campaign. He said, "Like, hey, I'm doing all this freelance design work. I want to uh, take a break and redesign CSS tricks. And if you back it on Kickstarter." Uh, you know, it'll give me that money so I can take the time off to do it. And as a thank you all, like does record tutorials of the process and release those to people who 
uh, who backed the project. And I thought like, oh, okay, this is cool. He'll probably make the 3,500 bucks that he's trying to raise. And he, in 30 days or whatever, how long the campaign was, he didn't raise 3,500. He raised 8,300, or sorry, 83,000. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, order of magnitude difference there. Uh, and I was blown away because I was like, wait, Chris and I are the same, right? We learn new design techniques. We use them on client projects. Uh, you know, we like continue in that, in that cycle, in that loop. And I thought of us as the same. I actually probably thought of myself as more talented than him, um, <laughs> if we're being honest. But if you go back and, and look, like now this Kickstarter campaign is like this huge reminder right in my face of like, wait, there's something very different here. Like we're not the same. And so I went back and looked and realized like, oh, we were learning these new skills, applying them to projects, learning more and all that. And the difference is that he was writing about it and teaching it. He would learn something new, use it in a project and then teach about it. And then that was that extra step in the flywheel that he was working that I didn't have. And I kind of had the realization of like, oh, all these people that I look up to as experts uh, in the web design community, um, in online business and everything else, they didn't become experts first and then start teaching. Like we see them as experts because they teach. Like I had the order backwards there. And I had just watched Chris do this in a remarkable way and build this audience and this whole business and everything. Um, and I totally missed out on that opportunity. And so from then I realized like, oh, okay, I, I just have to teach everything that I know. I'm going to put out blog posts and teach all that. So I started teaching design. I started modeling a lot after Chris Gillibo and his material on. Let me, let me um, just reiterate just a, just a second here, yeah. because this is, this is a really important point. And I, I love digging into people's backgrounds, even though, you know, this we're talking about seven years ago or something and, and people can say, well, you know, things were different then or, or whatever, or your story's out there. Maybe people have heard it before, but this is one of the most important points that anyone can understand when it comes to entrepreneurship. And that is simply, you can sit back and look at people who are doing things and say, well, I could do that. But the question is, do you do it? And, <laughs> right. and you had that realization, oh, there is a difference between us, even though maybe I feel like I have the same talent, the same skills, the same curiosity, all that kind of stuff. I didn't sit down and do the work to publish to a broader audience and connect with those people and help those people and so on. And so if you had started a Kickstarter <laughs> at the same time, you might have gotten a few friends and family and a couple thousand bucks or something. But here's Chris Coyer, because of the work he had done for two or three years prior to that, he was getting paid $83,000 to redesign his own website. He didn't really <laughs> yeah. even sell anything, right? Right. And, and this still holds true today. Um, and, and, and I love that. And I love watching you continue to publish because um, so many people, I think, just end up riding off into the sunset. You know, you've got your email startup. It's doing super well now. Um, but I, I continue, like I said but right before we jumped on, I just watched you in a YouTube video building a tiny house. And I mentioned at the open that, um, you know, you've, you've got all these titles that you consider yourself a, a creator, an author, designer, and so on. And um, 
that video was proof that you are those things. You're a publisher, you're a designer, you designed your own tiny house, you're creating right. it and so on. And um, a lot of times, you know, people might wonder like, well, what the hell does this have to do with like email marketing or something? But um, I think you're just, you know, keeping your, your, uh, your chops intact, as they say, if you're a trumpet player, you know? So I, I love that about you. Um, after you. After you had this realization, was it like a painful transition or did it just all start clicking for you? Like what, what was that process like? Well, it definitely, it shook me a little bit because you run into these things that change your perception of the world. And like, that's what I think of as a content creator. If I can put something out there that like changes, like something locks into place and they're like, oh, oh, that's how it works. You know, like I, I had one of those um, moments I think along those lines, when you, you wrote the post, must have been 2011, 2012 on write epic shit. And, and yep. just like, oh, it's not just about the volume. People were saying like, you got to publish every day. You got all these things, you know, a bunch of 300 word blog posts, stuff like that. And realized like, no, Corbett's right. Like when you put out this content that is high quality, like that's the stuff that I really read with and I'm like diving in. Um, so I had that moment um observing Chris's stuff of realizing, okay, wow, this is, this is different. And the way, like the skill isn't the only thing that matters. Like there's this audience and not only that, anyone can build an audience and I just have to start teaching and telling these stories and sharing my journey. And so then there was a lot of work to go into making that happen and a lot of missteps or, or not necessarily missteps, but just like randomness. Like if you looked at the very beginning of my blog, it's like, i I write something about computer security and then I write the next thing is about like jQuery mobile and uh, CSS templates and stuff like that. And it's very meandering. And, and we're well, talking about nathanberry.com. Yeah. 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 And so when I started out, it was like this breakthrough moment. Uh, and then going from there, of like, okay, what do I do with that? Like if teaching and building audience is the secret and anyone can do it, then like, what's the audience that I should build? And so then that's when I got into teaching app design and, and all of that. Because I just said, okay, well, what am I spending all my time on right now? And I had left my job uh, and I was designing iOS apps. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll teach everything I know. And this is the world that I'm fully immersed in. So why don't I build that audience now? Love it. Um, what was the first thing that you tried to sell? Uh, what I sold iOS apps uh, and those did pretty decently. Um, I made a, an iPad app that was, uh, actually with a coworker, we went down to, um, like a, a hackathon that was hosted at the PayPal offices in San Jose. Mm -hmm. And, um, we, you know, everybody like pitched their projects and you're supposed to join teams. And I was there as a designer, he was there as a developer and we came like, there were a bunch of projects pitched and none of them sounded interesting. So I was like, well, I have this idea for an iPad app. Uh, so let's work on that. And the idea was a, uh, uh, like a speech device. So um, someone who had like nonverbal autism or um, had a stroke and lost the ability to speak would use these devices that were like these huge ruggedized PCs. Really um, expensive as well. Right? Yeah, like seven or $8,000. Um, because yeah. that's what insurance would pay. So it's like this fun little economic thing going on there. Um, yeah. And so it would have this grid of, of icons on it and you would tap on the icons and each one had a word or a short phrase that um, 
with it and then it had synthesized speech so it would speak for you and so some of these like text-to-speech libraries had just been ported over to objective c and so over the weekend um my friend robert and i built this out and had a little prototype and he said like hey good luck with it let me know if you need any help but like have fun with that and that ended up being a business that made probably like 80 or 90 thousand over uh, two years which must have been pretty exciting when you were you were still working a day job. Yeah, and that ended up being I I just pocketed every bit of money that that uh, that, that made, and so I remember having twenty five thousand dollars saved up when I quit my day job, and every dollar of that twenty five thousand was from the iOS app. The um, for people who aren't familiar, a hackathon is basically where a bunch of geeks lock themselves in an office for. 24, 48, 72 hours sometimes and just see what they can come up with at the end of it. And for you, that was a whole business. I've heard other stories of, of things like that coming out of a hackathon. Do you know, um, was Gumroad originally a hackathon idea? I think Sahil, it wasn't from a hackathon. Uh, I I think he did it as like effectively a solo hackathon. He built it over one weekend. Um, and he had this idea of like, people should be able to collect payments. I have a link. And I have a file and I just want money in the middle. Of <laughs> in those, the middle. Exactly. Let's things. see if I can connect that. And it, it's amazing to think um, how much you can get done in a short period of time that forms the real foundation of the thing that you're trying to right. sell. And then how much time goes into it after that fact. So you spend three days or two days building this thing and you get it to a state where it's usable. Right. But then afterwards, maintaining and adding on to that project just takes so much more time. With with ConvertKit, do you remember, was there like a, a big chunk of the work that got done in, in a defined period of time to begin with? Well, I think the initial part of ConvertKit happened in, you know, maybe two months or so, mm-hmm. right? To be able to create an account, process payments, send emails, it send some automated emails, right? That was uh, something that like we had an interface for it that at the time was um, pretty innovative. And, and so that initial stuff was like, great, two and a half, three months in, and it has all of that and we're ready to go. And, it, and how many people were working on that prototype? Uh, myself and one developer. And um, were those, were you both full-time? Uh, I was full-time. He was, you know, 20, 30 hours a week. Kind of so you've got like one and a half, people effectively for two and a half months, building out what becomes the foundation of the business that now you have close to 50 people or so working on every month. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing how that, how that works. Yeah. But then to your point, the other side of it was like, great, this does what it needs to like the emails are going out and all that. And I remember someone going to sign up and be like, well, where do I see all of my subscribers? And I was like, oh yeah, it needs a page that just lists out your subscribers. And then that page needs pagination. So you can click through it so it doesn't load. You know, because at first you're like, great, there's only 100 subscribers in here. We can put all that on one page. And someone comes in with 1,000 subscribers. You're like, well, that won't work anymore. You know, and like, it's just this never-ending list of things. And people would say like, oh, I'd love to switch over, do this. Oh, but you don't have tags? Oh, well, if you don't have tags, then, you know. And it just felt like I had this moment where I thought, MailChimp has been at this, you know, now for 19 years, but then for 14 years or something 
I was like, they have so many features built. Like it's just this giant uphill battle. Um, just to, and, it, and it, and it was, and you probably, so at, a, at the time, maybe you felt like we're never going to make it. We're never going to get to that critical mass of features that people need. Yeah. Well, one thing that's really helpful and that I always talk about is going after a specific niche because then it's a lot fewer features that you need. You can compete mm -hmm. in one particular area and you can choose your niche based on the features, you know, so you can say like, well, these people need all, you know, e-commerce people need all these other features. So we're just not going to go after e-commerce people right now or, or something like that. Um, but by narrowing it down, you know, you can close a lot of those gaps and convince people like, oh, well, I'll do that part for you or. Uh, maybe we'll build just only this this one feature that you need. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely felt like a never-ending battle to build out all of that. And honestly, sometimes it still does today. We've got you know twenty more than twenty engineers working on it. That's just kind of the work of of building something. Is right. you know it's never done unless it's a building. Uh, but if it's software, it kind of is never done. I mean, there's new things, new techniques invented all the time. And, and that's the mark of good software. It's, there's nothing more frustrating than when you sign up for something and it's clear that the product is just kind of stalled. And then you have to start thinking like, yep. can I really commit and be on this platform forever? Or am I going to have to, to migrate off? Um, in those days when you were building those features and so on, um, what was the balance like between signing people up and and building and and like the the marketing versus the the product engineering how did you manage all of that in the early days I, I think um a lot of people get stuck on feeling like they need to have a feature complete product before they can go out and get customers right but i'm hearing you say that you customers were literally telling you like oh well we need this feature and then you're like oh duh and then you start building it so it was sort of customer driven what was the balance there for you yeah, I went to customers immediately. So I pre-sold it, um, you know, to get the first handful of customers and then try to get people in it right away, maybe too early. Though I think it will, if you do it right, it will always be that you're getting customers in too early where you're like, ooh, that was, in hindsight, that was really painful, you know? But like, that's what you need. You need to people using it. You need all of that happening. Um, and it was a very a very minimum viable product. Um, but another rule that I had, you know, I never raised money for ConvertKit and um, I had money from selling books and, and courses and stuff like that. And I only put in $5,000 to start, which in hindsight, I think that was too little money. But um, the other thing that I wanted to make sure was that I would get money from customers right away. Cause I knew that if I needed customer money to finance it, then I had to talk to customers. And cause I, I thought that the biggest mistake I could make was to like go off and design the, and build the perfect system and go away in a dark cave for two years and then come back and be like, see, you know, internet, this is what you've yeah. all been waiting for. And, and they're all like, they tried it. I'm like, well, actually we were kind of just hoping you would build this instead. And so by needing money from customers immediately, then I knew that I had to, you know, every week beyond calls with customers and potential customers and saying, what do you need? What are, what are you hoping this will do? And that makes that feedback loop really tight. And I think that's so good because we can do that with any kind of product, right? With a course, a book, a new podcast we're coming out with, um, and especially software where we just like disappear and go into maker mode and 
don't talk to anybody. And then, then we get really surprised when it's like, yeah, I don't know why anybody, like no one's buying it. I don't understand. Like this is the perfect idea of what I thought they needed. And that, and that's sometimes the curse of outside money is that it gives you the ability to lock yourselves away and to not have to talk to customers. Whereas if you're bootstrapping, you're so dependent on that cash to actually fund the development. It's, it's, a blessing in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure at some point you get to a place where you're like, oh my God, MailChimp has <laughs> 3,000 employees or something crazy. Yeah. I don't even know. But um, how can we possibly compete? Uh, but it, it did work out eventually. Do you, um, let's see, do you know um, what got ConvertKit? So for people who aren't familiar, I guess there's a little context here. For people who aren't familiar, you um, publicly launched ConvertKit on your blog yep. as a project. You said you you kind of threw down the gauntlet for yourself and, and you, you created a challenge and told everybody about the challenge. And it didn't exactly go the way you planned initially. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us about that for people who aren't familiar. So I decided that I, I, I'd published two uh, books on design. Uh, one called the App Design Handbook, one called Designing Web Applications. They'd done well. I'd built a uh, email list up to a few thousand people. And I thought, okay, this is great. Now I want to really focus on, um, uh, I want to focus on software again, right? Because I'm teaching people how to build software, but it's like, you can kind of get in this world where you're like, you're just teaching and you're not doing anymore. And so I was like, okay, I want to actually build software and I want to build SaaS and I want the recurring revenue. And so I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to build a software company. Uh, I'm going to go from zero to $5,000 a month in revenue in six months. I'm going to do the whole thing in public. I'm only going to put in $5,000 of my own money. And like, let's see where this goes. Everything else will be customer funded. And I like every week published a blog post about the progress, how I named it and everything, which is pretty fun now that like ConvertKit's the size that it is. And that entire history is public. Um, At the end of six months, we got to just over 2000 a month in revenue um, and everything else happened. So, you know, what is that? 40% of, of the goal. And so yeah. I was, I had mixed feelings about it. Cause on one hand I was like, Oh, it's a failure. And I like, I genuinely felt that like, Oh, like I said, I have to do this. And then, then on the other hand, I was like, wait, I have a software business doing $2,000 a month after only six months. The other thing that I realized is everyone says when they start the company, um, they count from the day they launched, which I realized was interesting. I count from the day like I started thinking about working on the company. Right. Um, and so something later, people would be like, yeah, we've only been working on this for... Actually, I remember when ClickFunnels came out. Um, and they're like, yeah, we've only... like uh, The company's only six months old or the company's only two years old and we have this crazy thing. And I realized, oh, you worked on it for two years before the date that you're starting to count working on it. Yeah. So I was like, oh, there's a difference in where we're counting the starting line here. <laughs> but. Yep. And and um, people may not know, but during that time you made an important decision, which carries through today, which is you, you reported your revenue publicly. And um, the number that I got in the intro to this was from your public revenue numbers. You can go and see how well ConvertKit is doing. Um, has that led to anything unexpected for you? How do you feel about that today now that it's, you know, six or seven years later? Yeah, 
Yeah. So I've always been transparent because this idea that, you know, was founded from Chris Coyer basically of like, oh, okay, teach everything, you know, like, um, I'm going to share it all. And one thing that I can share is, is revenue because something that has always bothered me is if I'm trying to learn from somebody and, you know, so I'm like, Hey, how'd that product launch go? How did, how's business, you know, some of these other things and, and someone will respond like, Oh, the, uh, the launch went well. Here's some tips for your launch. And I'm like, did, is, did you do $2,000 in revenue? Did you do $200,000 in revenue? Like what is it did well. And yeah when you actually put numbers to it, then you give context. And I think a lot of the reason that, you know, on one hand we complain about people being financially illiterate. And then on the other hand, we're being like, Oh, but don't talk about salaries. No, 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 no. It's in poor taste to talk about money. And I'm like, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> like you have to just talk about it and be open about it. And so I always thought just how much I learned from people being willing to share real numbers. And, and um, I think of Chris Gillibo's, um, Oh, what is the name of it? Uh, 279 days to overnight success. Yeah. You know, and if you read that, it, it, it's a, a, a short book about getting to $60,000 a year in revenue as a blogger. And it wasn't crazy big numbers, but I was like, whoa, okay. A blogger could make $60,000 a year. That was so inspirational to me as well at the time. It was just, it was like a little blueprint that you got to read. Yeah. And so just think like, imagine a blueprint, but it doesn't include any measurements. We're like, and I'm like, here, go build this. And you're like, okay, is this a tiny house or is this full size? Like, is, <laughs> how big is this bedroom? Like, what? You know, and you're like, yeah. oh, don't worry about it. Just build it. And you're it's like, no, I, could, I could use some measurements and some numbers. And so as a creator, being one of these people to come along and put numbers to it and say, here's the blueprint and here's the measurements and here's what it'll cost you and everything else. Um, it just really stands out. Hey, before we keep going, here's a quick message from Gusto. Small business owners wear a lot of hats, and while some hats are great, others, like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, they're not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can get direct access to certified HR experts, too. Sounds like a pretty good way to kick off 2020 for your business, right? But here's the thing. Deadlines for the new year, they creep up earlier than you think, and you're going to want to get started now. So don't wait. Let Gusto make it easier on you. As a bonus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself over at gusto.com slash fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. So you go from $2,000 a month at the end of six months. Fast forward today, you're doing a couple million dollars a month almost. And uh, something happened in between there. It didn't just, just magically happen. And it's interesting. Uh, you guys come up quite a bit. Um in conversations that I have with other entrepreneurs, people who know you as well, yeah. mutual friends. And there are differing opinions on what was the difference maker for you in getting over that hump. I've heard people talk about the fact that you did direct sales. Mm -hmm. I've heard people talk about the fact that you chose a specific niche. 
I've heard people talk about the fact that you got a few bigger name influencers involved. There are several different things that are disputed. What, what do you think was the difference maker, if not maybe a combination of things? Yeah, it's always a combination of things. Um, if I had to pick one thing that's a difference maker, I wrote a post on this uh, earlier this year. Uh, but it's basically enduring long enough to get success, to get noticed, to, for any of these other factors to, to factor in. Like there's a stat, I don't know, that people throw out there of, you know, half of all businesses fail in the first year. When I think about it, like a business is not actually capable of failing in the first year. When you think about it, like pick a kind of business, uh, a consulting business, a restaurant, a publishing, but like it can't fail in the first year except for the founder walking away from it. That's the only reason that it can fail. And it didn't fail. The founder chose to not pursue it anymore. Yeah. And so you have to create these circumstances where um, you have the ability to persist. Like uh, Sean McCabe talks about uh, show up every day for two years. Like kind of have the, this minimum bar of uh, as I'm starting a podcast, as I have the the book or a blog or anything like I'm going to work on this every day for two years. And then I'm going to judge if it's successful because what everybody else is doing is like trying this thing, like launching a new business, working on it for three months, six months on the weekends. And be like, ah, you know, it just failed. It didn't work out. Like, no, you gave up on it. Um, and so all of those things, you know, the direct sales, the focusing on a specific niche, bringing like influencer marketing, um, they were all absolutely key to growing ConvertKit. Um, and the thing that it needed was like sticking it out long enough to, for those to be even possible. Cause none of those, uh, none of those strategies even came into play until two years into running ConvertKit. Yeah. And, um, the, the specifics of the things that we're talking about, the niche that you chose mm -hmm. was, uh, so you enter this market that at the time was pretty big. I mean, there were quite a few competitors. You could probably name at least a dozen or more yep. uh, that were all multi-million dollar businesses. So you chose to create email marketing software. Great. There's already a couple dozen of them out there. Uh, but you chose a specific niche. What was that niche? Yeah. So first I chose um, email marketing for authors because there was this segment of the audience that, that I was trying to serve. Um, it was the Leo Babauta and the Chris Gillibos and the uh, Sean Ogles, you know, like all of these people who are good friends of ours who were making money online. Um, they were running real, like real businesses and they were audience driven businesses because they'd all discovered, um, you know, all of them before I had that, like an audience is the, is the cheat code for everything. You're just like everything in business becomes easier when you have an audience. So it's like, okay. What term do I use to, to define these and to, talk about these people. An author is the first one that I came to because I thought, okay, Chris Gillibo is an author, um, Tim Ferriss, other people. And what I quickly found was two things that were interesting. One was that it immediately opened up a whole bunch of doors because people would be like, this is email marketing for like anybody. What? And once I said authors, they're like, oh, let me introduce you to my friend, Jane. She runs a great marketing website specifically for authors. If this is targeted offer authors, like she'll write a review, you'll get posts, she'll do a webinar, you can bundle it with this and that. And like people immediately knew how to position it and how to help. 
Um, and then the other thing that I found is so many of those people in the community um, were aspiring authors and they were giving up when they realized like their dream was to get a book published on the Kindle store for $3, but like writing is hard and actually we're going to give it up after a month or two. Um, and so focusing on a niche was really powerful and I saw the results right away. And then I saw that like the people that I attracted were not right. So then I pivoted that and tried to find another term. Um, and I ended up going with professional bloggers um, as the term and people more closely identified with that. And it had like the aspirational aspect to it of like, well, I'm not quite a professional yet, but I want to be. So I'll use the tool that the professionals are using. Um, and that resonated a lot more and we got more traction with that. And then ultimately years later, we pivoted to go more, more broad and go to creators because it's kind of an all encompassing term. And that, that's the cool thing about um, choosing a specific target audience or niche is you can always change it. You can yeah. always grow eventually. People get so worried about it. Well, if I, if I focus on professional bloggers, well, what about all the other people? I'm, I'm leaving them out, right? But you just end up getting traction so much faster because you're speaking the language that those people need to hear. And they go, ah, this is maybe this marketing software will actually suit me better than all of these other ones that are more generic out there. Yeah. When we would even go, like I remember talking to venture capitalists, uh, uh, we're probably a hundred thousand a month in revenue, just over. And I was considering raising money and we kept getting turned down by so many people because they were like, bloggers is such a narrow niche. Like you won't build a big enough business with that. Um, and I remember thinking like, Oh, you, you don't even know We're going so much more narrow than that. Because I would do things like, um, you know, Baron Quadro with Effortless Gents was a customer. And so then I got his testimonial and was like, okay, now we're going to go after men's fashion bloggers. Like I'm going to get <laughs> as many men's fashion bloggers as I can, like using Baron's testimonial. Yeah. And there are, there are a decent number of them, but. Yeah. And, and, but it got this traction that I could go after other ones. Like yeah. uh, Joel Runyon signed up with uh, Ultimate Paleo Guide. And so I was like, great, let's go get all the paleo recipe blogs. Because I didn't have anyone that some random blog uh, would have heard of, but I could show up with a, pa a paleo recipe blog and that, oh, Joel uses you guys? Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if it's good for him, it's probably good for us too. And they would check it out. And then like it wasn't until later that we built up to names that um, were maybe more broadly recognized in the community, like a, a Pat Flynn or a Tim Ferriss and then, you know, Gretchen Rubin and Tim McGraw and like, up a level where you could actually name drop those people and have them really recognized. But by drawing a narrow circle and going in on a specific audience, then it, it you could create this feeling that like everyone was switching to ConvertKit. And it's like, no, no, no. It's just that every men's fashion blogger in your circle is switching to ConvertKit. And when you say, let's go get these people, is that where you got into direct sales? Were you reaching out directly to those folks? Yeah. So I, I like, if you pick a, a circle that small, um, turns out they all follow each other on Twitter. So you can go click around and find more and, and build out a spreadsheet. And then, you know, plenty of Google searches, men's fashion blogs, men's fashion blogs in New York. Um, you know, uh, I guess blog roles had pretty much died out by that time, but you could like see who was guest posting on each other's sites and, and basically like build that list of, okay, here's 50 men's fashion blogs. Um, here's 50 paleo recipe blogs and then craft an email to, to them and say like, Hey, I, uh, I see that you're using MailChimp and, um, I was wondering, is there anything that's frustrating you about MailChimp? 
And the reason I ask is I've started ConvertKit, right? Email marketing uh, system for professional bloggers used by Joel Runyon by, you know, and like name drop the most relevant person. Um, and then like that, it'd be a really short email. Uh, side note, if you're going to do cold emails, make it really short because if it's anything longer than two paragraphs, I know you copied and pasted it. Um, but then it would get a good response rate and people would say like, oh, I am frustrated about these things with MailChimp. And it would be similar things that I was frustrated about. So it's like this natural, like, wow, that's exactly what I was frustrated about with MailChimp. And that's why like, and then it would turn into a conversation about why I started to convert it. Go from there. Did I um, hear at one point that there was a moment where you had to decide to double down on ConvertKit and, yeah. and make a really serious go at it? Yeah, so that was uh, about a year and a half in. Right, so six months in, we got to 2000 a month in revenue. And I assumed that, okay, it's not what I wanted to, but like if we keep climbing at this rate, another six months or so, and we'll be at the 5,000 that I wanted and then 7,500 and it just goes up from there. Um, I learned that that's actually not how subscriptions work. Uh, the defining thing about subscriptions, I, I guess the defining thing is that like the money comes in again. Um, but the next most defining thing is that uh, there's churn and that people cancel. And like everyone who gets into subscriptions has that. The first month they're like, this is incredible. The second month they're like, this is not all it was cracked up to be. Like, where's all my revenue going? You're supposed to pay me forever. Um, and so that like turned out. And and over that next year, uh, we went from 2000 a month down, like up and down, but got to down about 1400 a month. Um, and I was talking to my friend Heaton Shaw, who'd been really helpful. Um, and I got to know him because I did this web app challenge. That's actually something... If you're going to set out on a journey to build a blog, you know, an audience, start a company, write a book, any of those things, if you are public about where you're going and why, then all these people will come alongside and try to help. Like if you look at that very original web app challenge post, um, there's people like Heaton Shaw and David Hauser and others who are legends in the software space who are like, they're basically like, oh, I like this. Hey, man, if you ever need anything, like, shoot me a note. Happy to get on a call. And like, there are people that would be really hard to get a hold of, but because I put out, like, you want to help anyone who's going on a journey. And so me being public about that really helped. But then, uh, you know, at this point, a year and a half in or so, um, I was at a uh, microconf in Las Vegas coming back from dinner with a bunch of the, of the speakers. And I was talking with Heaton Shaw and he kind of stopped and pulled me aside from the group for a second and said like, you know, Hey man, I've been thinking about it and you've been working on ConvertKit for a year and a half now. It's down from its peak revenue. It's making not even $2,000 a month. Like you've got the books and courses, you've been successful at other things. You have the blog, like you should shut down and convert it and move on. And I remember thinking that like, that's not what a supportive friend is supposed to say. Like they're supposed to be like, come on, man, you've got this, like just grind it out a little longer, you know, or whatever else. And they're all optimistic and like, I'm sure there's someone else out there who will buy it, whatever else. And Eden just was like, Hey man, you're talented. This isn't working. Like it's time to stop. And then he just started walking again. And so I like was kind of stunned and, and then I caught up with him again 
And once I did, he just said like, you know, or the other options you can take it seriously and you can give it the time, money, and attention it deserves and build it into something real. But like what you're doing is not working. So either shut it down or double down. And that like, that was such an important moment um, because I realized that like he was right. I needed to actually evaluate like basically the effort that I was putting in was not going to get me to where I wanted to go. Um, and I mean, to this day, I'm so, so thankful to for him for saying that. It's interesting how he set that up. It almost feels like a, like he was playing to your psychology oh, yeah. by, <laughs> by for a moment making you feel the loss of, of shutting it down. Cause that I'm sure all went through your head very quickly. Oh my yep. God. Like, and then saying, but wait, <laughs> there is a way out. And so you, you, you decided to double down and, and did that mean that you said no to other projects or, or you changed things dramatically? Yeah. Well, first I did what I feel like everyone does when they get really good advice. And that's that they wait like six months to act on it at all. And so I basically sat there with it and, and was like, and continued to work on it gradually um, with the same level of part-time effort. And then uh, when the revenue dipped below 1400 a month, that's what our like fixed expenses were to run the business. And so I was like, wait, now I'm actually like subsidizing server costs and everything and paying for this out of pocket. And so that finally got me to say, okay, I have to make a decision on what, what he said. And so I really like mental models and frameworks. And so I went and made a simple one for trying to decide whether or not to shut down a business or double down. Um, and this, I published it on my blog. Um, but it was basically just two questions. And one was, um, do I still want this as much today as the day that I started? Because I think that a lot of things that we make, like they have this excitement and this momentum and you get six months, two years, whatever down the road. And you're like, you know, honestly, past me thought this was a great idea. Current me is not so psyched about it. And if I'm just not interested anymore, then like shut it down, move on, um, like bank those learnings and roll it into the next thing. And that's fantastic. Um, but for me, I answered that. I was like, no, I still want this. I want to run a software company. I want this next challenge. I was like, okay, great. Then proceed to question two. And that's just, have I given this every possible chance to succeed? Like my absolute best effort. And when I answered that, I was like, okay, well, I've worked on it part-time. I have a blog. I have books. I have these courses that I'm working on. Like, I don't think I've ever worked on ConvertKit for more than 20 hours in a week uh, since that like first initial six-month stint. And so now there's a huge disconnect here. I'm saying I really, really want this and my actions don't match up. And so actually, if I shut down ConvertKit now, I will always have this question in my head of, could I have made it work? And like, if I had really put in effort, could I have made it work? And I realized that's not a question I was okay with living with. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go all in on this for six months and try to see, can I build it to $10,000 a month in revenue? Like it's at 1400 now, like if this thing's going to work, it's going to get to 10,000. And so, so I decided, okay, I'm gonna go all in on it. I took $50,000 of, uh, which was all of our savings from uh, the books and courses and everything and poured it into the business. I hired uh, two full-time people. Um, and like, and that's when I started direct sales. That's when I started the uh, focusing on a niche audience. Um, 
and went after it. And we, you know, we got to 1400 to 1600 to 2000 and like climbed up there um, each month. The funny thing is, I don't know what I was thinking with $10,000 as a goal because I didn't hit that either. (laughs) (laughs) But you at least gave yourself like something to shoot for and um, it it lit a fire under you and and you got that motivation. And then you put more skin in the game, all the cash, everything kind of left yourself no option, but to really do your best. Yeah. And so I also had, you know, I had the books and courses and I said like, okay, I'm not going to work on them anymore. And so I put them on hold and I let them, you know, the idea was passive income, right? It's magical. It'll keep flowing in. Um, and the courses will keep selling. They were selling about 15, like 12 to $15,000 a month when I wouldn't do a launch. And they pretty much immediately went down to like $2,000 a month. (laughs) And so that was pretty disappointing. Um, but I stayed focused on ConvertKit and, um, did, yeah. did the did the financial pressure cloud your judgment or or cause any significant anxiety? It caused a lot of anxiety, um, but we were keep we were chipping away at getting this at like ConvertKit's recurring revenue growing, and I was seeing that progress. Um, I did like completely run out of money. You know, like if I were to log into my Wealthfront account, you can see it like go to zero as I pulled everything out. And then, you know, a few years later, it starts to climb up. Um, but, you know, we lived a fairly conservative uh, life financially. Boise is not an expensive place to live. And so that really helped. Um, and I did actually go back. So about six months or seven months after making that decision, I went back and did a second edition of, of my book, Authority and did a launch of that. And that was 20 grand or something like that. And so I did dip back into that other bucket because having an audience is magical. You can do that. Um, and so I remember, um, I don't think I've talked about that very much. I remember saying like, okay, I'm going to take these two weeks and I'm going to do this launch and that's going to get me a bunch more runway. Um, but other than that, I stayed, stayed away from it. Speaking of, uh, having an audience and the magic of that, now ConvertKit has worked with tens of thousands of creators. Yep. Uh, you guys have a conference for creators. You've got uh, an amazing library of uh, content online for people who are trying to build these kinds of creative information sort of businesses. You've seen a lot over the past seven years or so since you started ConvertKit and, and since you wrote your own books. For people listening to this now, is there anything that has changed about growing an audience and turning that into a business in that time? Or is there any specific advice that you have for people who are just getting started now or who have kind of not gotten over their own hump? Yeah. It's interesting to think about what's changed. Um, the market, it's definitely more saturated uh the market for blogs or content but i don't think that that's actually affected like the ability to get traction i think it's actually made it easier because it's not like a software or something like that right you only pay for one email service but i can read three personal finance blogs just fine and the fact that i read three might make me more likely to read five um and so other thing that's changed is also the amount of money that creators are making online now like I remember, um, 
you know, if you go back to the early days of like get rich slowly or uh so like jd roth and um and leo about in the early days or that kind of like these blogs were not making that much money or right. even chris gillibo as you said who was at the time to me one of the most successful people i knew online right and yet that year he made sixty thousand dollars like you said yeah and so now you see people putting up um like the that level of success online um you know relatively speaking is, is like half a million dollars a year of income which is kind of crazy so that's something else that's changed is the, the uh the audiences have grown so much like i remember thinking who was it it wasn't Leo's site. It was somebody that we were talking to and their audience was huge. And I remember it being like 8,000 email subscribers, mm-hmm. you know, and that was a really big audience then. And so now you like the lift and the size that people are getting to now is just crazy. And they're doing it. I mean, it's still really hard, but they're doing it. I feel like with similar amounts of effort. Um, so that's been inter- interesting to see. I think the biggest advice that I would have is just that it takes a lot longer than you think. And so to keep at it, like, you know, convert it's been going on for seven years now. Um, but I look at it like MailChimp has built their incredible business and they've been at it for 19 years. And so I'm like, okay, if I, from where I'm at today, if I'm stick with this for another 12 years, where could I, where could I get to? And I think so many people online are, are, are really in that mindset of I'm going to start a blog or a YouTube channel or whatever else. And like, let's see where it gets at after three months. And then I'll decide if it's worth it or not. Um, and that's why I love what, what Sean McCabe says of show up every day for two years. Like you're not allowed to evaluate whether or not this is a success until 24 months in. And that's not, that's not just hang around for 24 months. You're right. saying show up every day, which means work hard, yeah. like do good work. And I think that if you do that, you can't help but win. Right. If you if we go back to the beginning of the conversation, if you have that mindset of I'm going to keep learning and I'm going to keep applying these things and I'm going to show up every day and I'm going to do it for a long period of time, then like your first ideas or your first things for the site or whatever else, they're, they're not going to work out. But you're going to learn from that and you're going to apply it and you're going to keep showing up. And I just don't see a way that you can fail doing that because everybody I know who fails in business just means that they gave up and walked away. Um, cause they weren't willing to endure long enough to, to get that success. Nathan, uh, this has been an honor. Thank you so much for digging deep today. Uh, I feel like people are going to get a lot from this. I really appreciate convert kid. I appreciate you and your team being such a good friend of fizzle and, uh, congrats on all the success. Thank you. It's always fun to hang out and talk, catch up on the old days. Awesome. Uh, You guys can find more from Nathan Berry over at nathanberry.com and you can get a free 30-day trial of ConvertKit by going to fizzle.co slash ConvertKit. As always, you'll find links to everything that we talked about today over at fizzleshow.co. This was episode number 361. I'm Corbett Barr and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.